and welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, where we gather to debate the biggest topics in all of tennis, of course. And today, a lot to get to. Say hello once again to our lovely panel. There she is, former Wimbledon singles champion, the lovely Marian Bartoli. There she is, tennis writer, author, and very today, as I understand, opinionated in advance. Looking forward to that. Carol Bouchard. And finally, tennis writer, journalist, uh, president, as you know, the association thereof, the incomparable Simon Cambers. All right, team, let's get right at it. Shocking news happening in tennis in several areas, including just recently the shocking and surprising announcement of the retirement of Ash Barty. My question for you is, um, how shocked were you that Ash Barty has decided to end her tennis career? And how exactly will the tour miss her? Let's begin with you, Carol Bouchard. Well, I was so shocked that I had to read the WTM message like twice at 8 a.m. being like, what? <laughs> but because, I mean, honestly, I wasn't expecting it. Also because she had said, uh, sorry, I'm missing Indian Wells and Miami, but I'm not ready to go back and whatever. So I thought maybe she would have done that after winning just when an Open. So at first it was a shock. But then when you think about it, that the second time, uh, clearly she had won everything she expected to win. Um, clearly, that's not the life that she prefers to, to lead, you know, to be on tour, to be far from her family. So it makes sense. It was just the first part where like, what? She's 25. She's at the top of her game. She can win multiple Grand Slams. But that's the proof that for, you know, for some champions, it's not, it's not enough. It's not the main thing. Oh, is she going to be missed? I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, we're going to miss the game because she had incredible variety. Uh, she, she has a unique game. Nobody plays like Ash Barty, and you could see the issues she was, you know, uh, giving to, to, to her opponents. Um, are we going to miss um, the personality? I think we yes, because of how humble she was and hardworking and not in the, you know, the bling bling era. Um, maybe sometimes too, too much. Maybe sometimes you could be like, come on, Ash, just let go a little bit. All right, Marion Bartoli, same question. How surprised were you? And how exactly will the tour miss her now? Yeah, kind of exactly the same as Carol. At the beginning, I was like, wait, wait a second. It must be a mistake. She was uh, retired from just Indiana Wells, Miami, and, and not for the whole career. And I think it was about the same thing that people said when I announced my retirement. I remember Andy Roddick being live on his shows, and um, his editor just came to him saying, I think Marion Bartley just retired. And he was like, no, she just retired from Cincinnati. She didn't retire, period. And actually, he made a bet of shaving his eyebrows if I was really retiring, like for real, which I think he had to do at the end. But anyways, um, for me, it was just a shock for her age. I, I just felt she's so young. And, you know, she, she stepped out of the game already for about two years. And she came back and, and found her range, especially when she started to win that Roland Garros 2019. And she started really dominating women's tennis every time she was playing, except Maybe the U.S. Open, that was a little bit more difficult for her, but everything else, she was really on the roll. And usually, you know, you, you get that feeling when it's time to retire, when you start to feel it's hard to keep up for you. So that's why I was a little bit surprised. But when I read her explanation saying, well, you know what, after winning Wimbledon, I dreamt about it for so long that actually I felt after that a part of me was just gone. And that really rang me bell of exactly what I felt when I won Wimbledon as well. Simon, same question. Ash Barty, how surprised were you when she announced that she's retiring from the game? Well, I was <clears throat> surprised enough to think that it was April Fool's Day. I had to check the, the date. I read it early in the morning. I was a bit groggy. I was like, what? 
well, that's a really weird statement on an email. And then, then I looked into it, and obviously it was it was uh, real. Um, a big surprise, you know, big shock. It seemed like she was set. We talked on this show, didn't we, about how she could go on to win several more Grand Slams. She seemed to be right at the top of her game. But you just never know what's going on inside a player's head unless they tell you. Um, and clearly she had felt, after Wimbledon, as, as both Marion and Carol said, that, that, you know, she'd achieved something that was a lifelong dream. You've got to remember that she has been on tour for 10 years plus. So it's not like she's just played three or four years and then decided that's enough. She um, she reached a point where she didn't want to be out there anymore. She didn't want to put herself through all the hard work. And she's young enough, and everyone knows this, to maybe in a couple of years' time come back if she feels like it. Um, she's already had time off before, obviously for different reasons, but she does things her way. And in that, in that sense, it wasn't a surprise. It was a shock because of the timing and everything, but it wasn't the world's biggest surprise. Now, will the tour miss her? I, I think the world, the, the, the tennis world will miss her a lot because her game style was so nice to watch and she could do it on every surface. You know, the fact that she won Roland Garros as her first Grand Slam, I think surprised a lot of people given the way she plays with her slice backhand being so important. But she became a really great server. Her serving stats are incredible the last couple of years. To win on grass was a huge achievement. And obviously winning in Australia in front of her home fans must be something, you know, just amazing to, to feel and accomplish. I think the tour will miss her a lot because because of her game style, not necessarily because of her personality. She was a good ambassador for tennis because she's such a nice person, says the right thing. But she's not out there outspoken about big issues and leading the way. And, you know, if there was a, a problem with the WTA tour, I can't imagine Ash would be the one, you know, lighting the fires behind the scenes, threatening a strike and all that sort of stuff. Well, I felt she would definitely have a huge impact on all those girls in Australia. It's just because she's a winner. And, and Australia has been really looking forward to have that Grand Slam champion in Australia, not only abroad, and obviously Leighton Hewitt was that big one winning abroad, but not in Australia, and she has been finally the one just carry on that extra pressure and went on all the way with such extremely impressive level of tennis and dominance as well. And I think in that sense, she will absolutely um, have a legacy and inspire so many kids. I don't think necessarily they will try to copy her game style because that's very unique and that requires, you know, some very unique capabilities I don't think all the girls can have. But will they want to become a Nash Barty in the sense of winning Grand Slam? Absolutely, and I sincerely believe it. Um, I was having a chat with Alicia Molik, which is a Fed Cup captain, a few weeks back on a, a Tennis Australia conference, coaching conference, actually. And she was, you know, already talking about the fact that having Ash going so far in the Grand Slams abroad and now in Australia was already seeing a rise into... Uh, players and especially girls going on court and trying to to play tennis and for a much longer period than what they were doing before. So in that sense, I sincerely believe she will have a true legacy. Will she be missed? For me, absolutely, because she was dominating. And we have been talking so many times on the fact that we couldn't find a girl that was actually being able to just compile the year when they play great. And I'm thinking about Arina Sabalenka, who played one year incredible tennis, and this year, so for some reasons, we have, you know, see her serving in Australia and it was quite horrible and now she just can't win a match and and Ash was not that kind of player she was just so consistent of course she was sometimes losing one one or two match here and there but she would never beating herself up she would just going on court being extremely consistent with the level and if someone come up with something better on that day then it was too good but I never felt when Ash was on court that you know I'm not quite certain of 
that the kind of level she's going to bring on the table. And in that sense, you know, the WTA is lacking that so much that in her, they, they have found that finally. And in that sense, I think she will be highly missed. Let, let's move on now. Stay on the women's side. With Barty's retirement, Iga Svitek is now the world new number one. Question, which is more likely to happen? She holds on to that title for a good while, or we have another extended period of instability at the top of the women's tour, which is more likely. She stays at top for a while, or we see a lot of fluidity and fluctuation. Carol, would you like to go first again? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I say it doesn't depend fully on her. I say yes on the shape she has now. She's playing great tennis, and she seems mentally ready. Uh, I still think if we can get Naomi Osaka and Bianca Andreescu back into this game, we'll have not instability, but rivalries. But if not, I think Iga Swiatek can totally do it. I mean, she has the technique, she has the, the fitness, and she is ready to own it. She's not scared anymore of the expectations or anything. Uh, so I think she can do it, yes. Well, it's just because of the way the rankings work. It's more likely that there's a little bit of change over the next uh, few months as you know people come into a surface that they like uh, and are better than the other players on. So there's you know you've got a lot of people around the same totals in the rankings, and for Shvantec to be as consistent as she's been lately is going to be hard. But she has everything that she needs to be a dominant player in future. She. She's already proven that she's not, you know, you know, winning on clay was unbelievable, but she's not just a clay court expert by any means. She's playing great on hard courts. Um, she will be able to adapt herself to situations. She's getting stronger all the time, physically and mentally. She's still very young. Um, so as Carol said, there are still people around who might be able to bully her off the court occasionally at the moment with a, you know, extra power. But as time goes on, she looks the most likely to be the one who is dominant. It might just take a little bit of time. No, I think she would stick just based on the way the ranking works. So she has took uh, very important points in uh, in Australian Open, playing great, making the final four. Then she went into Doha, winning a Masters 1000. Then she went into Indian Wells, winning a Masters 1000. So all those points comes additional. And that's a lot of points already compared to what Naomi was able to get out of those three tournaments or Arena or whoever is in the top 10 um, Badoza, you know, all those girls are are trying to chase her and uh, try to take her down from the number one ranking. So I believe that she's coming on her good surface, which is clay, when, you know, she has won Rome, obviously, last year, obviously, Ron Garros as well before that. So she will get a lot of points on that surface. I think Grass is definitely going to be her biggest challenge just because of that forehand when it starts to get, you know, fast on that on that shot. It's, it's hard for her. Um, but if she can somehow get through that first week and have a decent result, I believe she can carry on that first ranking up until, you know, just before the US Open starts. Where if someone really do great there and um, and win the, the title, gets 2,000 points. If it's, you know, a Naomi or something who has been able to get also extra points elsewhere, they can catch up on the ranking. But the way the ranking works, when you start to have already you know, close to 3,500 something points on three events, it's really hard for your opponents to catch you back because it's just so much in regrouping and all those major events. So the way the ranking works, you have to perform well on those big events. Unfortunately, the the names you have mentioned, Carol, those girls haven't been able to do extremely well in those events. And therefore, Iga has really took a big lead so far. So I don't think she will step out of the number one ranking anytime before probably the back end of the summer. All right, let's move over now to the men's side, where we've had more drama than the Oscars. 
um, in similar conduct, unfortunately. After recent unsportsmanlike conduct and physical and emotional outbursts by Zverev, Brooksby, and Kyrgios, which surprised you guys the most? Their behaviors or that they have yet to receive a, quote, proper suspension, which has surprised you the most? Simon, why don't you get us started? Well, I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about things, but the fact that the ATP haven't given them a proper suspension, it's not that surprising, is it? Because they're they're an organization that don't like to put their neck above the water. It's it's not that surprising. It's really disappointing because, you know, certainly, I mean, for me, of the three incidences, Sverev's behavior was the worst. You know, you can't you can't attack an umpire's chair with a racket just below his foot. And it's a really aggressive gesture towards a person. To me, that's like, you know, that, that's that's as bad as almost as bad as it gets. He may as well have punched him. Um, but he's still, you know, he's still got very little, really. Uh, I think Kyrgios slamming the racket into the court and letting it go was a little bit unlucky where it went. He still, it was still very bad. Brooksby's was a bit more petulant in some ways to me. You know, he's a younger guy and he need he will learn from it, obviously. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that the ATP didn't act properly. I don't understand why not. It would have, it to me, it would have been better for Sverev in particular to have a couple of months ban, see uh, the psychologist like Kyrgios did all those couple of years ago when he was first suspended, and and see if that improves his behaviour. Yes, he was very contrite and apologetic, and they they all have been eventually. But to me, it's 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 behaviour. You just cannot virtually attack a human being. The poor umpire looked terrified. And I don't blame him. All right. Well, I got you. I'm going to ask you a part B on this. What would have been appropriate punishment or what would be still appropriate punishment for each of these three? As I said, I think Sverev should have been banned for a couple of months, maybe three months. Um, Kyrgios and Brooksby, I, I, theirs was not deliberate, whereas Sverev's was a deliberate act, you know, in terms of hitting against the linesman, against the umpire's chair, whereas they let go of their racket, smashed it. You know, very reckless behaviour. If he had hit someone, it would have been outrageous. They would have been thrown out immediately. But I think for me, Sverev's was worse. Okay, so if you guys aren't surprised, then which are you more disappointed by? You can answer either. Marion, the behaviour and the outburst thereof, or the lack of punishment and accountability um, yet from the tournaments and tour. I would say both. Honestly, for me... um Exactly what Simon said. I mean, I can't be more aligned with what he said uh, to see Zverev just going out and just smashing his racket so close from this empire and just really almost wanted to attack him, but stay in that fine line when it doesn't touch him and it sort of can still defend himself. For me, that was just outrageous. Um, that would have deserved to me at least three tournament suspension. Couldn't play Indian Wells, couldn't play Miami, and and that first tournament on clay, whatever that might be, Monte Carlo, whatever. I think that deserve at least that, um, you know, to to just say, okay, this is it. I mean, because otherwise, where do you draw the line? You know, if if you can get away with, okay, it's it's a big amount of money for normal people who are in normal salary, but for tennis players, so such as very especially who earn so much on the court and off the court as well, co- relatively compared to what he's earning, is actually not that much, and. You know, I don't think he will learn the lesson the way he should have been learned. Um, I was still extremely surprised, actually, by Brooksby, who, for me, when I discovered him last year at the U.S. Open playing against Novak, I just thought, well, this kid is probably not the one who's going to, you know, like Ashbari, not doing one step wrong. For me, it was that kid who was just super humble, 
you know, going out there, playing hard, fighting hard, but just not the ones going to turn around and throwing that racket close to the to the ball kit. Don't tell me that it's not on purpose that you do that. I mean, I have played the game. You can't possibly tell myself that you don't know where the ball kits are on the court. Of course, you know their locations and you throw that racket still in that direction. So for me, that's equally really bad behaviors. For Nick, it's slightly different. Yes, he's more common that he's throwing the racket on the ground and then fortunately the racket can bounce and whatever. So that's different. But throwing the racket on purpose towards the ball kit where the, um, the scoreboard is, it's horrendous. I mean, you can't attack people around the court just working, you know, as lines person, chair empire, and ball kids. You just can't do that. You know, and, and unfortunately, the, the ATP is not ready to take proper action. And, and I feel so bad for them because they're looking the worst out of this whole situation. Because, yes, the players have awful behaviors. But if you don't stand for yourself as an institution, then who are you? I mean, I don't understand who you are and where your values are if you sort of, in a way, allow this. Because Brooksby was not taking it out of the court. You can apologize all you want, of course. I mean, who is going to say, no, of course, I'm not going to apologize for this. Of course, they're all going to apologize for it. But you need to have some sanction because otherwise, what's the point of having an institution like the ATP ruling the whole thing? I don't understand. Yeah, just quickly. I mean, it's another example of the ATP's lack of independence in in these uh, circumstances. They need to there needs to be a disciplinary body that deals with this sort of stuff, not like a branch of the ATP that you know a panel with someone on it. It's just not enough. It needs to be a clear uh, setup so that players know that if they do something like this, then they're going to be judged by this group of people who are independent of the ATP, and it's fair and it's done. This way, the ATP is always, the temptation must be always slightly to fudge it or to, to err on the side of caution and try to reason with the players and help the player. All right, Carol, you didn't have a chance yet to answer the question, so please do such. On their behavior and conduct, more surprised, disappointed by the actions themselves or the tour lack of taking action and for some punishment? Um, um, unfortunately, I'm not surprised at all. I'm disappointed from how the tour is handling this because, I mean, I've been seeing that for years and I've been called the debut donor or whatever. It's, it's going to end badly. Like at some point, somebody is going to be hurt and that's going to be a disaster. Uh, but I'm, I'm the most appalled by the way they're dealing with Zverev because it's not a one-off. Like Sasha Zverev has been abusing umpires for seasons long. He can't accept when he's being told no. He can't accept when the rules apply to him. He's been abusing them over and over and over. And you have the opportunity that is obvious to finally do something. I mean, he's going to physically assault the empire. If you get away with this, where do you, as Marion said, how are you going to sanction the other players after this? That's why Bruce maybe is not disqualified because what, what can you do? You're letting Kyrgios for years doing this. Now you're letting Zverev. You're going to ban somebody else and the guy is going to come, what, why me and not the others? But I mean, if, if Zverev doesn't get any ban, I mean, even six months, get out of here. But maybe that's also an issue about the empires. I don't know how that works, but how come the empire uh, don't, don't, why, in the Brooksby case, 
Why don't you use your, sorry, your power and get the guy out of the court? Why isn't a supervisor coming to the ref and, and anybody in power and tell them, you don't get this kid back on, on the tour. We won't empire him. They have to protect themselves if nobody else is doing it. But I think the ATP has, as Simon said, an independence issue. And maybe, maybe there, you know, there's been, um, Players weren't happy with the ATP for a while. There's this, you know, union of players that is all, all above their head. Maybe sometimes they could strike or whatever. So maybe that's their way to try to show the players we are on your side. We're protecting you, but that's the wrong side because they're not protecting the game. You lead by examples, but you also lead by the bad ones. If this keeps multiplying and we're like, oh, but Nick is so good for the game. I mean, Nikhil Girls didn't play for a year and a year and a half and the tour didn't die. Sasha Zverev can disappear for a year or maybe two from this tour. Nobody is going to come and say, oh my God, I miss Sasha Zverev so much. It's not going to happen. Why are you letting Sasha Zverev leading your tour? He has how many, how many cases now on his back? Like two, three of violence? Oh, what does he need to do to be banned? So I'm not surprised by the behavior of those players because they're huge, except for Brooksby. Maybe bad luck, maybe, but also maybe he sees the other and he does, he does the same. But I'm not surprised by the other two because it's an habit. So when are you going to stop them? I'm just disappointed that for some reasons that I don't understand, I honestly cannot understand. They're refusing to, 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 to ban them. I mean, for Zverev, I cannot understand why he's still on the tour. I can't. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing about Zverev is that it was a doubles match. You know, that's that's the bizarre thing about it. It wasn't like a Grand Slam semi-final, you know, so much on the line or anything. It was just a doubles match. I mean, for, for him, that's not that important. Yes, he's friends with Marcelo Melo, but, you know, it's just, it's very odd, very odd behavior. Okay, so so let's do this. Let's compare and, and contrast these behaviors of these players today to the so-called good old days and the antics of... Jimmy Connors, and more so John McEnroe. What's the difference for you, Simon, between what you saw then in the good old days with those guys and what we're experiencing now? What's, what's the big difference for you? It's a, it's a hard one. I mean, and I say this as someone who I worshipped McEnroe as a kid. He was my sporting hero. But his behavior at times, I mean, some of his behavior was outrageous. Most of the time it was aimed at himself. It was anger at himself. He obviously took it out on the umpire quite a lot, but it was usually verbally. I can't actually remember McEnroe ever throwing his racket. Now, I may well have missed that. I can't remember him sort of hurling it around. Connors either. Connors was nastier than McEnroe. It was all a little bit, it was a bit behind the scenes. He sort of, you know, sticking his fingers up when he wasn't looking and some really nasty stuff. And But back in their day, there was a, a rule in place where if they if their fines breached a certain level, they would actually get banned from the tour. There was a structure. It was before the ATP took over officially in 1990. I, I think, I mean, there's not much difference. They were pretty badly behaved. McEnroe destroyed Stockholm's flower arrangements all those years ago. That was pretty bad with, a, with his racket. But I don't know. I think it's more the the lack of what we're seeing now with, with Zverev and and the th- the racket throwers, it's a it's a lack of care. It's a, like this is my I can do what I like, you know. Whereas I felt I always felt like McEnroe was for the most part honest in his anger towards the umpire or things that he felt had been wronged, you know, against him. And and Connor's a bit of the same. Connor's got himself going by doing it, but that, that's the, probably the only difference for me. 
Well, I'm not going to be the, the right person to answer this because my tennis idols were Pete Sampras and Monica Seles and probably two of the best behaviors people had ever played the game. I mean, Pete, I don't remember one word over another one in his whole career. Um, the image I have from Pete is when he cried playing Jim Courier in the Australian Open in five sets when his uh, coach was sick and someone in the crowd just... Uh, shout to him do it for your coach and he start to to cry so i mean i can't remember one movement or one thing that pete has done wrong on the court and same for monica Seles. so so i'm really not the person i mean i i respect john for everything he has done on the court and of course i work with him now on on several tv channels jimmy chorus was really not my time um so i can't remember extremely well but i i don't think because obviously john was having a lot of fans around the world that you know, they were doing bad stuff and they got away with it. And, and therefore we should sort of, you know, let the new generation do the same. Because I just believe that, you know, now, especially with Okai and, and all those technologies on, on calls, um, there's so many assistants from the chair empires, you know, and, and more. I mean, we're speaking a lot more about even removing the, the lines person having everything electronic. That's another story. But you know, I don't think because it had happened in the past to some certain degrees of difference, that it's fine to still let it go and, and still have it now. I, I just don't think we should get into that path because as as Carol said, I think it's going to escalate to a point when something really bad is going to happen one time and then the whole tennis is going to have a major impact from that incident. So I think at some point we just have to put a full stop to it and just write it down exactly you know, and, and, and I'm absolutely fine with what Simon's idea is. Having someone outside from the ATP, a sort of extra commission, they're just saying, well, those are the rules and whatever your name is and how many Grand Slam you have on or not, whatever your ranking is, as long as you play an ATP event, those are the rules. And those are the sanction implying to the rules because otherwise everything is just too blur, you know. And, and once you have, you know, those blur lines when... Yeah, it's bad, but not that bad. And maybe there is an excuse here and there. That's where it's become difficult because there is just not a strict rule book that you can rely to. Even for us as a media, I mean, you know, that has become more judgment on the person, whether you like that person more than another, whether you're ready to forgive more to someone and someone else. And even for us in our own analysis, you know, it's really difficult. So un until we have a clear rule book and this is what it is, no matter where you stand in the ranking, I think we're just going to go around the pot uh, until something really get bad happens. I think the tour is also a victim of a trend of a lobbying. That is, we need to relax the code because it's going to be better for tennis. We have people who are too nice, like Roger, Rafa, too nice guys. We need to change. We need to let players, you know, be more demonstrative, make more the show. And I'm like, Gail Monfils makes the show. He's never been, you know, eating anybody. So I think there's this lobbying of, oh, but we need those kind of tempers. And I'm wondering if they've been told those players, like, you know what? Be yourself. It's good for the game. Be yourself. That's fine. We're going to cover you. But I think that's the wrong, that's the wrong part to take because the tool is not going to win anything about this. And, uh, I, I really, I, I can't, I can't understand why is the logic. I tried to understand since he didn't get banned because he has suspended banned. Please at least make him see someone or I don't know, but I, I can't understand what can be the logic behind it. It makes, for me, it makes zero sense at all. And talking about the, the, the old era, I think that the, 
the ad that they want to have, like, oh, we are going, going back the time, but there was Mac and Rose about Connors. Okay, but it's done. And the game has been growing fantastically under eras without these kind of personalities. Why would you want to go back to, I, I don't want to go and see Zverev abusing everybody. At least McEnroe had the results. I mean, give, give Zverev results and the, the, the temper and, you know, maybe people we can compare, but you cannot compare even Kyrgios and Zverev to McEnroe and Connors because those guys, they haven't won what he had done. So I think that's the wrong, that would be the wrong, the wrong thing to do. I think the ATP just need to, to find a way to assert themselves like, guys, we're the boss because if not, nobody, I remember Federer in Madrid one year playing Kyrgios and saying, we need a clown for this circus. He couldn't believe the the thing Nick was getting away with and it's like a clash of generations and we were like yeah <laughs> yeah I wanted to have that the two nicest players you know when she said when Carol said Rafa and Rogers are the ones that ultimately has filled the more stadium ever for tennis I mean the record in in audience was what that match in Mexico with Roger and it was absolutely packed having someone that again just never did anything wrong on the court. Maybe one time he smashed run racket in Miami. I think that, remember, anybody got booed by the crowd. I think it's probably the only time he got booed by the crowd ever uh, when he played. And that was it. And those are the guys that have filled up stadium after stadium after stadium, year after year after year after year. So I, I just don't understand the thing of saying, yeah, but we're going to attract more the young generation because they're going to look more to those kids and the more... That's the way they're behaving themselves. I think it's, it's just the wrong message. All right, moving on to other developments and drama. Which of these recent developments upset you the most, panel? Was it A, the British government calling on Wimbledon to ban Russian players if they do not publicly declare their opposition to Vladimir Putin? B, Stefano Sissipas calling for five set matches in the women's game or C, the standardization of the final set in Grand Slams with a common rule of a super tie break at 6-6. Which bothers you the most? Let's begin with you, Marion Bartoli. C, without hesitation. I mean, for me, just to put that rule of saying, well, at 6-all, everything stop, and we're just going to play a tie break to end up that match, I think is wrong. I mean... I have countless memories of incredible matches and incredible thrillers just based on the fact that, yes, it was not over until you get two games apart. And and those, I mean, John Isner against Nicola Mahou, and, and I have several, um, that Kevin Anderson, John Isner, obviously, semi-final in Wimbledon, um, and so on and so on, that match between Rafa and Novak at the Australian Open. And, and that's part of, of the thrill of those matches. It's you know, you never know when it's over. And, and you never know it's going to be 6 old, it's going to be 10 old, it's going to be 20 old, and, and who is going to, in a way, last the most and survive that spreader. And, and for me to stop and give it a hand and say, well, it's 6 old, that's over, you just guys play a tie break and that's it. Um, that's just killing the, the, the whole atmosphere, um, the whole sense of, of not knowing how the match is going to head it. And, and I'm just really disappointed that those four grand slam the line on that roll. I'm going to go the other way and say which bothers me the least. And the one that bothers me the least is the uh, standardisation of the final set. So the opposite of Marion. I, I have no issue with it. I think it's a good idea if, you know, tennis is trying to sell itself to the world all the time and compete with other sports. It's good to have a formula that, you know, a score, a scoring system that is the same in each of the four biggest events. 
It was always ridiculous to me that they're different everywhere. Sometimes you think, oh, that's quite nice. But to be honest, if you can't break someone's serve by the 6-6 in the final set of a Grand Slam match, then you're never going to do it, almost. So I feel like, you know, then it's decent. You have a 10-point tiebreak. Good idea. Get it done. No problem with that. I was just looking up, but I can't quite figure it out with Sitsipas's five-set comments, whether he was asked about something that brought it up or whether he just launched into it, which would be very odd. I'll find it maybe later. But, I mean, his actual comments about women playing five sets, uh, to me, this and the other one are non-stories. This is something that pops up every now and again uh, for whatever reason. I really don't know why. Um, I just think if the women want to play five sets and if the women are asked to play five sets, then they should be allowed to play five sets. But as far as I know, they're not pushing to play it. And no one that I've heard of on the women's tour has been saying, yeah, great, let's play five sets, let's do that. Um, Of course, if they're asked to play it, I'm sure they're well capable of playing it, it'd be fine. But it's just a non-issue. It's a a classic sort of clickbait story, total waste of time. And the other one, the the issue of the war in Ukraine is horrific. And, uh, you know, the the topic of what what should happen to Russian players and Belarusian players on the tour is, is a very complex one. And whether tennis should take a stronger stand on maybe joining some other sports and saying that individually they can't play, I don't know. <clears throat> but I think the, the actual specifics of this thing, it was the, the sports minister who was asked a question about it. And he said, well, it's something that we're thinking about. Maybe we'll talk to Wimbledon about it. It was basically off the cuff as far as I could see. You know, this this government in Britain, for anyone who doesn't know, just likes to say stuff and, you know, doesn't really back it up with anything half the time. So I would be amazed if Wimbledon did it off their own back and said no Russians and Belarusians come, cannot play because Wimbledon liked to, you know, be the sort of bastion of sport and also to say everyone's welcome and we're not going to stick our noses out and cause a fuss. So that would be a big surprise. And I just think that the comment by the sports minister was it had no weight to it. Sure, something could happen, but until there's more sort of you know, until there's a, a stronger line to it, I, I really don't think anything of it. I mean, if, as, as I said, it could happen that Russians get banned and then that's a, a, a totally different discussion. But as far as, as far as we are now, it's, it's a nothing story. All right, fair enough. Let us move on then to our final question of this episode of Match Points, which, by the way, is now available, remember, is an audio-only podcast as well as the show as we present it to you each episode. All right, panel, which of these three, we're going to go predictive once again, which of these three scenarios is most likely to happen? Is it A, Carlos Alcarez winning Roland Garros? Is it Novak Djokovic winning 25 to 30 Grand Slams in his career, as our own Patrick Maratoglou suggests? Or is it C, Rafa Nadal having a normal summer U.S. hardcourt season without sustaining injury. Which of the three is most likely to happen? Marian Bartoli, you are first. Novak Djokovic winning between 25 and 30 grand sum. All right, Carl Bouchard, you're next. Yeah, same. I wouldn't say 30, I would say 25, but definitely, definitely the second one with Novak because I think Alcaraz is still a bit too young for Roland Garros, so I'd say... I stay Novak and also because Rafa with his body right now has decided to gamble again, I mean, more than usual. So unfortunately, I want to say, so definitely Novak at 25. All right. And finally, Simon Cambers. A, A, A and A again. Alcaraz, no question. This year? 
Oh yeah, my no, god. I'm, ju- I'm just going to say it in a, in you a sort of... You said this year. You said I'm like, uh... it, No, not this year. It can't be this year, can it? Yeah, that was a proposal. That was a proposal, Does Simon. It, it there was, was, there was no mention of this year. Garros this year. That wasn't what he said? Yes. Well, if I'm going to guess, if I'm going to guess what the producers intended, I'm going to guess that they intended this year. Either, either or. He's not going to win it this year unless Nadal or Djokovic don't. And in which case something happens. But he has absolutely the game and the temperament to win lots of Grand Slams if he keeps going on this trajectory that he's on at the moment. Um, and clay is going to be a big surface for him, obviously. To win for, for Novak to win another five Grand Slams means you know, it means him being dominant pretty much for the next two years, three years, or you know, winning two Grand Slams a year for the next two, three years, which is a hell of a lot to ask. And for Rafa to actually get through uh, Cincinnati and Toronto or uh, or Montreal alone, let alone the US Open, is a 50-50 call any year. So where um, are you? Where's your answer, Simon? <laughs> I go back. If it's lifetime, then it's alcohol. No, it's not lifetime. Of course, it would be lifetime. Everyone would have inserted this. It's not lifetime. It's this year. Okay, if it's this year, then Rafa playing a, a full, whatever, a full US season is. All right, fair enough. Remember all of the content available, as I mentioned, at tennismajors.com. This show as well, audio-only podcast. Subscribe on all social media, follow along. On behalf of our esteemed panel, Josh Cohen, saying thank you for watching. We will catch you next time for another episode of Match Points right here on tennismajors.com. Yeah.